0: You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, welcome to church today. Uh, I have a friend who's a pastor in Colorado, and I saw that he put out a, like this all-points bulletin online saying, the 845 service has been canceled because of the snow. We're only doing one at 1045. And then I got this morning, and I was like, thank you, God. Like, <laughs> what a beautiful day, right? It's a good day. It's good to get up. It's good to get ready. It's good. To come to church and be together and we're so glad that you're here. We're in a service called Identity Formation Community Mission and we're talking about how spiritual growth actually happens. Uh, I have three boys and a number of years ago as they were going to get to be about the driving age, uh, I thought I got to train them on some stuff like related to the car, right? And so I thought well I'm going to train them how to change a tire. And I just got my tires done uh, here in town and uh, I'm driving along. We have on Saturdays uh, mornings what we call a man time, and man time has been since my boys were little. It's time with the boys and dad. We go get a Starbucks. We talk about certain things. Uh, we hang out. Sometimes we do something together and we debrief on it. Well, this one day I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna teach them how to change a tire. So I said, all right. Uh, I'm driving in the car, and all of a sudden I, I pretend like we get a flat oh, boys, we got to pull over here. And so I pull in behind on this park here in Elk in Grove, and, and I pull over to the side. And I said, guys, you know, we've got a flat tire. We've got to change the tire. And they're like, okay, no problem. No, it's cool, Dad, no problem. I'm like, great. I'm not telling you how to do it. I stood back, and you watch them all of a sudden realize, like, wait a minute. Then they get out. They see the tire's actually not flat. And they're like, Dad, it's not actually flat. I said, that's right. But what if it was, and what if you were going to drive and be by yourself? So you guys got to figure out how to change a tire. And then it's amazing because you see all their personalities come out. One of them's like digging through the car, like where's the jack? You know, no one has already, you know, pulled out the driver's manuals, flipping through to find out changing a tire. Another one's Googling 2006 Scion XB, (laughs) right? And I'm not telling them how to do it at all. So they finally figure out where the jack is, how to get it out, how to put it under the car, how to put it at the right spot to actually, you know, not do hurt the, the body of the car, get it in the right spot, they get the crank out, they, they do that, they get it all up, and then we get the, the tire iron out, and we they stick it on, the, on the, uh, the lug nut, and we're going to loosen up the tire. And so I'm like, okay, they're doing pretty good so far, right? They're doing pretty good. They've got the spare out, it's ready to go. I mean, they just are, they're doing pretty good, and I'm thinking, all right, they're going to learn how to do this. And, and they start, like, trying to undo the lug nut, and I'm like, like, they're just like, Ugh! you know? Nothing's happening, and please understand. My kids know right tight, left loose, right. So they they know how to like make it go the right way. And I'm like, okay, guys, all right, I got to intervene. Let me step in. So I get there, I'm like, let me show you how Dad does it. So I get that thing, and I'm gonna just crank it down, right? I can't budge the thing. Pretty soon, I'm standing on on top of the car. <laughs> Nothing's working, right? And I just got new tires, and so uh, what I realized all of a sudden was, you know what? It's really good that we had this formative experience. Because it's important for me to realize that when they put the tires back on, they cranked them way beyond specifications. So that week I took my car and I said, man, we, we couldn't even get the tire off. You guys got, And sure enough, they'd like cranked them way too tight without doing it to specifications. The tire shop repaired it, got it all great, and it was good. But all of a sudden, I mean, wouldn't that have been horrible? Me, by myself, out on the road, got to change the tire, can't even get the thing to budge. We have these formation experiences in our lives. And, and there are times in our lives when you and I are tried, we're tested, we are tempted. And our formation experience with the, the fake, uh, you know, flat tire would have been a fail. Like, like, we didn't pass the test. We couldn't even get the tire off. But in the experience, we learned something. We gained strength for the days ahead. We actually made some corrections so that it would become a reality in the future. It was a good experience, but I couldn't say that it was a success. There are times in your life and my life when we are tried, when we are tested, when we are tempted. And without that, you and I never become ready for the battle. We don't become battle ready. You don't get soldiers who are battle ready without them going through basic training, right? That's a formative experience. And so they're getting all ready to do that. Formation is where you and I are strengthened so we can carry what is ahead. See, we think it's a temptation that I failed. We think it's a test that I failed. We think that it's a, we're being tried and either we, we did well or we did poorly. But the truth is, it's strength builder. It is building your strength so that you can carry more in the days ahead. And God declares our identity and he moves us now to seasons of formation. It's one thing in your life to look someone in the eye and say, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, sickness and in health than it is to go through sickness, and go through worse, and go through poorer. It's when you're in those formative experiences that you test what exists in that relationship. It's in those experiences that you're tried, you're tested, you're tempted, and that we can all look around in our culture and in our own lives and say, there have been certain times we did well with that, and other times we did not. Do well with that but God's intent is that they strengthen us so that we become battle ready we need to choose a stand in our identity in the formation experiences because formation experiences always challenge our identity don't they remember Jesus he goes down to be baptized and God from heaven says you are my son whom I love in whom or with whom I am well pleased that's his identity but right away, information, when we get informative experiences, it's going to challenge are you really a son or a daughter of the Most High God? Are you really a believer? Are you really? It's, it's really going to begin to challenge not how are we doing in this test or this temptation or this trial, but the challenge is always going to be against our identity from our accuser. And there's something we need to realize that we got to go beyond just information that sometimes people see formation, they think it means I got to get more information, so maybe you accept Christ you invite him into your life as the Lord and Savior of your life, and now you're like, I got to learn everything there is to know about the Bible now let me tell you, you need information, you need basic this is your owner's manual you need information but I got to tell you something, you could have the entire thing memorized and information Plus application is what's going to equal transformation in your life. If all you have is information without application applying it to your life, you'll never experience transformation. When people are surveyed and they say why they don't believe in God, you know what the number one answer is? Suffering. Suffering. I don't believe in God because of suffering. They would say, I can't reconcile the suffering I see in the world or the suffering I've been through in my own life or the suffering of a loved one. I can't reconcile that with their being a God. And so I'm going to choose because of suffering when, that I'm not going to believe in God. When Christians are asked, when did you grow the most in your life? They say suffering. Do you see the difference? It's the formative experiences that cause you and I to grow in our identity. Instead of saying, "Hey, suffering exists," and I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw it out, I'm gonna, you know, push back at God. Instead, we say, "It's in the times of suffering. It's in the times of formation. It's in the times of testing that I learn to rely on God the most, and He builds strength in my life." See, my kids at times will ask me questions concerning their hurts, or their Christian walk, or their life, and Isn't it funny that many times the same things that our kids struggle with, we struggle with? Do you ever see that in the questions your kids ask? And you might come back to them, well, I've got a lot of information. And you give them all sorts of information, but as you look at your own life, you might say, I've got a lot of information. But because I haven't applied all that information, maybe I'm not experiencing the transformation I so long for in my life. Why? Because information plus application equals transformation. Maybe you see in your friends around you. Maybe you see in your coworkers. Maybe you see other people that when life squeezes them and they are tried or they are tested or they are tempted, it begins to reveal what exists on the inside. So how do we grow spiritually? How do we move from identity to formation to community to mission? How does that happen? If you have your Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has just gotten baptized. And it was there that his identity was spoken. It says, you are my son or my daughter whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Right? So his identity has been spoken. And then Matthew's going to walk us through what the next phase is, the next season is. And he uses a word called then. Let me tell you something. Then introduces a new phase. Then is the beginning of uncharted territory, then describes a next step. Sometimes then is the introduction to a formative experience in your life, isn't it? I was going along, I was doing fine, I thought everything was great, then. And it's an introduction to something new in your life. What is it mariners wrote on their old maps you know, years ago that they'd, when they went into uncharted territory, so often they would grab an old map and, and they'd, they'd be afraid of what is the unknown and they would say, here be dragons. <laughs> they'd write it on their map, right? They just don't know. It just seems like it's scary. And that's what happens when you and I sometimes hit the then of life. Matthew chapter 4. Beginning with verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So the devil shows up, he tempts Christ he's hungry with bread. He says, turn rocks into bread. And Jesus responds with the word of God. He doesn't talk about the benefits of rocks over bread. He doesn't talk about his ability to do miracles or not. He just says, listen, it is written. What does he do? He goes, he relies back to Old Testament. The spoken word of God is written down by people. And it says this, it is written. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. Well, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Now, watch what the devil does here. He says, it is written. Guess what the devil's going to do? He's going to quote scripture back at Jesus. He's like, okay, you told me it is written. Now I'm going to be like, well, because after all, it is written, right? Right? So what he's doing he says he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone and he quotes psalm 91 11 and 12 and jesus answered him it is also written see how this is going back and forth a little bit here jesus was like hey let me tell you it is also written do not put the lord your god to the test he quotes deuteronomy six sixteen. strike two for the devil Verse 8 Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 13. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Isn't this interesting? There's a then season in Jesus's life. He's carried out into the desert. After fasting 40 days, he comes through three temptations. He keeps quoting scripture back at the enemy. And the enemy does, first of all, what he does with you and what he does with me. The very first thing he questions is our identity. He comes to Jesus, the son of God, and he knows who he is. Satan's not wondering who is this Jesus guy. He's not getting up to speed late. Remember, the demons knew Jesus instantly. Satan is, in a sense, the leader, the deceptor, the, the leader of the demons. He knows exactly who it is, but who he, one-on-one, he comes to him and says, "If you are the Son of God, the first thing the enemy always does for you and for me and even with Jesus is to try to question our identity. If you're really a Christian, if." You're really a daughter of God or a son of God, if you call yourself, right? He always comes and questions our identity, and then maybe for some of us, we start to question, well, maybe if I'm being tried or I'm being tested or I'm being tempted, maybe I'm not. And what Jesus is showing us right here is that the enemy's first ploy is to question identity. Identity. But the case is closed, it's solved. When you and I put our faith and trust in Christ, we are his. And those who are his are going to be tried, we're going to be tested, we're going to be tempted, but it doesn't undo our identity. It's a formative spirit it's causing us to grow. Why would the devil who knows exactly who Christ is, why would he come and tempt him? I mean, this is Jesus, this is God become flesh. This is the God who kicked him out of heaven for his pride. Why would Satan now come Try to tempt Jesus. And the reason is that it is a last-ditch effort to pervert the nature of Christ's deity, offering him shortcuts to temporary gain. See, this is the exact opposite. What he offers him is the exact opposite of Christ's role as a suffering servant. God become flesh, living a perfect life to suffer, to humble himself, to take his death upon the cross, taking our sin upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. There's an unfair, unequal trade that's going to happen and the the devil says, I'm going to try to pervert that very nature of Christ's deity from the beginning. More importantly, Satan always attempts to steal the worship that is due God. He's an egomaniac. He's always puffing himself up. He lives a defeated, deflated existence, but he is always puffing himself up, and he wants to steal away from God the worship that is due him, and let you give it to you, or you and I give it to him, or you and I give it to something else. That's his agenda. See, I got to tell you something. Satan is not threatened by a season of formation. He could care less. Jesus is in the desert, and he's hungry. Satan shows up. Satan doesn't care about formation. Formation doesn't threaten Satan. Satan is threatened that the formation experience might lead to mission. See, he's not threatened by formation. What he's threatened by is that you and I would get on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's threatened that through the formative experiences, Christ would stand by the truth of the spoken word of God and that he in turn would get on mission to save the world. That's what Satan is threatened by. He could care less about formation. He would love for you to get more information and think more information is going to help me simply be formed in formation. He would love for you to be in another Bible study. He'd love for you to read another Christian living book. He would love for you to read a lot of Christian romance novels. Right? All these things he would love. He's like, get get filled up with information. Because unless you have information plus application, the strength building won't happen to exist and have transformation in your life. See, he's threatened by purposeful significance. So our formation experiences prepare you and I to witness. They prepare you and I to volunteer and serve in the church. Our formation experiences prepare you and I to become more and more like Jesus, to connect with other believers and ultimately get on mission with great purpose. And that's what threatens Satan. But sometimes you and I get confused when we're in a formative experience. God, I understand my identity now. But now I'm going through these experiences, and maybe I'm not as strong as I think I am. Maybe, God, maybe I, I, I just am, am getting older, and I'm just giving in to things. And the enemy comes along, first of all, to question our identity. But you've got to realize that formational experiences are intentional on God's part. If Christ went through them, why would not you and I, Right? They're part of our regular routine of growing as a Christian. In fact, British pastor Alan Redpath said this, there is no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until first of all, it's gone past God and past Christ right through to me. And if it has come that far, it has come with great purpose. See, sometimes you and I question our formation experiences, but God allows even testing and trial and temptation that you and I would be able to firm up our faith and walk and grow, and we will read scriptures that say, in all circumstances, give thanks, give thanks in everything, and you think of everything? Really? I'm not thankful for a lot of things, particularly formative experiences, like in your suffering. God, am I supposed to say thank you for my suffering? That's not the intent of the scripture. The intent of scripture is saying thank God in everything that it's going to produce in you a formative experience and grow your character. So we're not saying, God, thank you for this disease that I have. But we say, God, thank you that in my struggle against this disease, it's going to form in me a formation experience that's going to help me enter a different style of community. It's going to get me on mission in a different way. It's going to help me in my growing with you. So God, I'm thankful for the trials. I'm thankful for what the trials and the tests and the temptations produced in our lives, and that's great purpose. See, Satan attempts to keep information from being applied. So it never turns into transformation. He wants you to get more and more information, never have it get applied, so it's going to turn into transformation. And we want our family strengthened, don't we? But Satan does not. We want our past healed, but Satan does not. We want our life to have meaning, but Satan does not. We want our relationships to have significance, but Satan does not. We want our work to matter to the kingdom of God, but Satan does not. We want our mission to actually reach lost people, but Satan does not we want our time and our treasure and our talents to last eternally not just temporarily but Satan does not and we want Sun Grove Church to glorify God but Satan does not but Jesus Christ does and he is greater isn't that good news he's greater when I was a junior higher and I was in a small group with my youth ministry the, the small group leader would often say uh, you just guys you just got to remember that God's foot is bigger than Satan's butt. And you know what? He's right. Satan is a deflated, defeated enemy, but he attempts all the time to steal worship away from God. It's the only way he can passive, aggressively get back at God because he knows his destination, he knows his end, he knows his final judgment. But the only way is that he tries to steal the worship that is due God and downgrade it one level. God is greater. Jesus reveals that right there. He didn't have to stand there and smack talk Satan. Hey, I was there and you got kicked out of heaven. Back off, man. That's not what he said. He quoted the word of God. And then we see a then. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. See, sometimes you and I enter formation experiences and we're scared of the then. The then came and we say, what do we do? What do we do? But it's in those experiences that God begins to grow us. It's those experiences that God begins to readdress wounds and disappointments and hurts and habits and hangups in our heart. And he begins to draw us back out of those. And as you and I begin to respond rightly and depend on him, to put our focus and our worship back on him, to prioritize back on him, then... The devil flees. And God comes and attends us. Your formative experience is not the end of the story. Your formative experience is a strength builder as part of the story. In the British Museum in London, there's this really old Mariner's map. And on this Mariner's map, the, the cartographer who is creating it, he wrote, "Here be giants." in one section. In another section, he wrote, here be fiery scorpions. And in another section, where the point of the known world like fell away, he wrote, here be dragons. Well, Sir John Franklin, a naval officer and an Arctic explorer, came into ownership of the map and he scratched out the fearful instructions and he wrote in really large letters, here is God. See, what has he learned? He's an Arctic explorer. He's been to the ends of the earth. He knows what it's like to walk through the desolate places. He knows what it's like to be hard-pressed by the elements. He knows what it's like to face things that no human being has faced before. And what he's found in all his exploration is that he's found that here is God, that you are never beyond him, you are never behind him. He is with you wherever you would go, and it conquers our fear of the vents. Here is God. But there is three ways, are three ways, that Satan wants to stop spiritual progress. If you have your outline, pull it out and let me talk us through it as we look at the temptation of Christ together. Number one thing that Satan's going to do is he's going to appeal to our flesh. Jesus is weakened. He's been fasting from food for 40 days. He's hungry. And in this moment of being hungry, Satan comes and says, if... You are the Son of God. Then he says, Tell these stones to become bread. What's he doing? why well, did he say, I mean, Satan's right there. He could have brought some bread with him. Could have gone to France, got some bread, brought it over, right? Really tempt the Lord. No, what does he do? He says, He's saying, God, you, you use your power to serve yourself. Again, the exact opposite of being a suffering servant. He's trying just to trick Jesus in the weakness of his flesh. And let me tell you, when you and I are in formative experiences, our flesh is often weak, is it not? Isn't it there that we're tempted to make concessions? Oh God, I'm not so sure about my identity, and now I'm going through this hard time, so I I, I ought to be able to indulge a little. I I ought to be able to question and doubt a lot. I, I ought to be able to just feed myself because it doesn't seem like God is meeting all my needs. He sells these stones to become bread. Well, what's that? First thing he wants to do is get you tempted to stop the good and serve yourself. Stop doing the good. Stop living out of your identity. Stop being a son of God or a daughter of God. Stop engaging with God. Stop reading his word. Just circle the wagons and take care of yourself. And he tries this all the time, right? Right? He begins to point out in his temptations, he begins to point out to you and me that certain hungers or certain desires must override the need for a fully submitted life. You might think things like this. You hear them in our culture. We hear them in entertainment. You hear them in the workplace. You feel them and are tempted by them yourselves. Things like this. God wouldn't give me these desires if he wanted me to pursue sexual purity. They're so strong. They're so big. Seems like everybody's doing what they want. And in a formative experience, when the flesh feels weak, then the Satan comes along to tempt. And he would say that these desires that you feel, certainly these desires must override the need for a fully submitted life. He tempts us with rocks and calls them bread. We might say this, "Uh, maybe we get tempted. Well, maybe God will give me this get-rich-quick scheme to bless me, and then I can give more. So instead of maybe tithing, what I ought to do is play the lotto, and then if I win the lotto, I'd have a lot more to give. And there's this, you know, the serve yourself motivation right under what looks like a good motivation, but we flip it over, and it's revealed for what it is, right? We get tempted to stop the good and serve ourselves. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, and the enemy's whispering, well, maybe God's just merely tolerating you. These trials are evidence of your weakness, or their evidence of God's retribution on what you've been doing, and you begin to feel like the season of formation is your fault, and that God's not for you, and the tempter is there whispering these things to you all the time. We take those thoughts captive. We make them obedience to Christ. Did you ever notice that Satan is the one who takes dead things and tries to make them appear as life-giving? Take these rocks and make them bread. So what happens, he comes along, he offers you a really big, heavy rock. He's like, look, this thing is like the best bread. It's like French bread. It's awesome, you ought to take it. And and we're tempted to take something that's dead like a stone and own it, hoping that it will give us life. And so maybe for you, you grab a hold of that and the sexual indulgence that you involve yourself in becomes a stone tied to your ankle that drowns you. Maybe that disappointment, that suffering, that disillusionment you've had with God. You, you, Satan comes along and says, be a victim. Hold that grudge against God and you, you embrace that large rock that he says is going to be a, a filling, staining bread and it becomes a stone that drowns you. Maybe one drink to relax becomes five drinks, which then becomes drunkenness that becomes a stone that ultimately drowns you. Maybe for you, that you begin to ask, did God really say that I should give return to him a tenth of my income. Did he really say that? And so you say, well, forget it. I'm just going to circle the wagons and take care of me because where has God maybe been in different situations? And so you circle the wagons, but you quickly find that greed is bottomless and spending 100% on yourself is not enough. And so you find debt and you grab a hold of debt and you hold that as a stone that gets wrapped around your ankle and drowns you. What happens? When we're tempted and we give in to believing that rocks are actually bread. We end up transferring worship away from the creator and we give it to the created, ourselves. We were not meant to worship ourselves. We do it by the nature of having a sin nature. But God comes along and reminds us in seasons of formation that there are little places that you and I have made idols And he wants us to build strength there so we are not wrapped up and carried away and drowned by the stone that we're hanging on to for dear life. And so he's going to walk us through formation. And when we're in formation, he always reminds us of our identity. You are my son or my daughter whom I love. Did you just fall flat? Do you have a big rock in your hand? Yep. You're still my son or my daughter whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Now let me train you and strengthen you to walk in that identity. But Satan doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to be spiritually dead. He wants to offer you spiritually dead things and tell you that it will make you alive. But Jesus is the only one, the only one with the power to take spiritually dead things and give them new life. He's the only one you can take your hardened heart and give it spiritual new life. He's the only one who can take the coldness of your heart, the distance of your heart, and give you new life. Only Jesus can do that. But Satan will offer you a myriad of other things, hoping that you'll embrace a rock and not find bread. So Satan not only appeals to our flesh, but secondly, Satan appeals to position He appeals to position. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Satan, by the way, quotes scripture. Isn't that interesting? He knows the spoken truth. He knows the written truth. He quotes it himself. But this is what Satan does. He manipulates it. He redefines it. And he changes it by just one degree for self-serving purposes. So he's saying, well, let me challenge your position. If you're the son of God, then just simply prove it to me throw yourself off the top of the temple and before your body hits the ground at terminal velocity, this scripture says that these angels are going to catch you so you don't even strike your foot on the stone. What does he say? He says, don't tell me, show me. If you're the son of God, show me. Well, Jesus is smarter than that. Jesus replies with scripture right back at him. He says, it also is written, he tells him, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Guess what? Scripture number two overrode scripture number one. Why? Because Satan was manipulating it, twisting it, trying it, right? See, Satan will come to you and say, listen, you don't need to stand out in the world. You don't need to be over the top as a Christian like one of them. Just love the world, and you can kind of love God too, See, if you and I have this philosophy where we're supposed to fall head over heels in love with what the world loves, believe me, we can enjoy living in the world. We can. We can enjoy living in the world. God has created much things about life, but we're not to love the world and its philosophies and its desires and its things. We're not to love and and own those as idols, but we're to enjoy living in the world. But the enemy will come along and say, listen, Love the world and love God. You can balance it. You can manage that. And he takes it just one degree off. And it says, I deserve, instead of I'm going to volunteer or I'm going to serve. He's like, let me, just, let me just say, and that's what he's trying to do with Jesus. Jesus, if you could just prove to me that you're God, you will begin to use your power to serve yourself, your ego, your pride. Instead of using your power for those you came to save. And Jesus doesn't give in to that temptation we are to become like the suffering servant we are to give ourselves away Look, at, let me tell you if you're looking in the Bible for easy you're not going to find it some of you are looking in God's word for easy just show me the easy way you're not going to find it in the Bible did Jesus find easy in coming to earth to sacrifice himself did he come to live a life of ease and convenience is that what he came no of course not In the Bible, you'll find peace. In the Bible, you'll find rest. In the Bible, you'll find strength. And in the written word of God, you will find that it is written that the word of God itself gives you life for your moments of trial. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world, but it's the enemy who wants to deceive us to believe what the world has to say. He wants to turn your worship away from God and get you and I to indulge ourselves. So not only does he appeal the position, but we're tempted to defend our pride. Remember the balloon a couple weeks ago when I would puff that thing up and let it deflate? That, that Sometimes the enemy comes along and says, oh, well, if you're a Christian, or if you think you can manage this, or any, he throws out a challenge, and what happens? We're tempted to puff up our ego. And then maybe we fail, or he pops it, and we're deflated. Oh, I must not be you. God says I am, because I failed the trial. I failed the test. I gave in to the temptation. And we live deflated but what happens, the enemy just subtly wants to come along and just say, puff yourself up. Prove it. Indulge yourself a little bit. And we get deflated when we give in to those things. And in a sense, it's like we we, we prove the accuser right. Isn't that the horrible thing about the accuser? We don't have to give him extra information to accuse us of. We give him plenty of ammo already, wouldn't you agree? So what happens is that he wants to keep pointing that out. That's why he's the accuser. That's why God's Holy Spirit is a good counselor. That's why Jesus Christ is our advocate before the Father. That whenever the Father looks and sees our sin, Jesus is like, paid for it! Right here. So what do you and I do when we're in a formative experience and we give in to temptation? What do you and I do when we're in a formative experience and we are hard-pressed? What do we do when we're tried and we're tested? Instead of puffing ourselves up, we follow our knees and we say, Jesus... I tried and I failed. Jesus, I am so weak right now. God, I don't have the wisdom to get through this. God, I don't know if I can make it. God, I don't know. And in so many ways, we come before him and we just just humble ourselves. And we say, God, I need you. And it's in that moment that God's compassion is engaged. He says, finally, you've trusted in me. You got to the end of you because I'm building some strength in you that you'll learn to turn to me regularly. You'll learn to turn to me often. I'm not an afterthought. I'm not a credit card in your life. But I'm the one who wants to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. See, the valley of the shadow of death is not death, right? But it feels like it. It's the valley of the shadow of death. And he says, I am with you. My rod and my staff, they comfort you. God engages his compassion when you and I admit our helplessness and we begin to experience strength in our time of need. Well, Satan not only appeals to our flesh and to position, but he also appeals to value. Let me ask, you know, our world always asks, what's your value? How much net worth do you got? What's your value? And you try and to think of your experiences and your abilities and your looks and everything that the world values, and we try to stack up our value. Well, Satan's no different. He comes to appeal to your value. He takes Jesus to the the top of a high mountain, and he says, listen, all this I will give you. You came to save the world, didn't you? I'll give you all this. Shows him all the splendor of the cities of the world. He says, I'll give it all to you, Jesus. Really, there's only one condition. You just got to bow down and worship me. There's an easy way to accomplish having it all, Jesus. It's just if you'll bow down and worship me. That's what Satan says. He's going to come to you and say, I'll give you all this if you just bow down in your little ways and worship me. The kingdoms of the world are big enough for everyone to find something to worship. Listen, the world is big enough and diverse enough and creative enough and inspired enough to find something different for every single person to worship. And we could all worship different things. Listen, there's no shortage of it. There is something for everyone. Then the enemy will come along and say, if you will just worship that, and it'll be different from what someone else worships, but if you'll just worship that, I guarantee you that I'll give you bread. But really it's like gravel in our teeth and our mouth. It doesn't satisfy. He says, if I can just get you to steal worship from the creator and give it to yourself, We're tempted at times to worship the world. It's half the role of advertising. Sales is the other half. The first half is worship. Worship leads to sale. Worship reveals itself in the sale. There's something for everyone, Satan will say. Take the affection that God deserves in your heart and pass it all out on something else. Let me tell you something. Jesus was tempted not to die for you. And not to die for me. In the garden, he goes to pray before he's going to be, be arrested, and he is in such physical distress that he's in an actual medical condition where you can be under the most physical and emotional distress that you actually drop sweats of blood, that you sweat drops of blood. It's not that you just sweated a lot, and that was like, You know people writing about what it was like no it's actually he's actually sweating out some blood because he's under such duress and in that time he says father if there's any other way to be on mission but not go through this experience then let's do that and then he says but not my will be done your will be done See, there were times that that Satan was still relentless with him and came to him and tempted him, don't die for everybody, don't do it, and as Jesus was under the dress of what he knew was coming, he made a choice to stomp on the head of Satan, that serpent, and that he overcame it, just like you and I can overcome that serpent by the blood of the Lamb and by the strength.